Thank you, Jim. Jim's prayers, not because they're boring, but because he is such has such a gentle voice, put me to sleep. <laughs> I mean, by the time he says amen, it's like, oh, it's a good thing you, you say my name at the end of your prayers so that I'm... He has such a wonderful voice. I want him to come tuck me in at night. It's just... Jim, just pray. The same prayer you prayed on Sunday was great. Just pray that right now while I go to sleep. <laughs> Gentle Jim. Well, this has been an interesting week <clears throat> for me. I have had allergies, bad allergies this week. And uh, so if I sort of sound like the cross between a frog and Sylvester Stallone this morning, <laughs> you'll know why. You know? You kind of, uh, you know? So, you know. Anyway, we used to have a Labrador retriever named Rhea. Rhea is a Hebrew word that means companion. So, a great name for a dog. But in Hebrew, of course, the, uh, the vowels aren't there in the original language. You just have consonants. Sometimes a vowel acts like a consonant. But anyway, there's no, there's, they're not written. And so you can sort of change the vowels around and you get a different word altogether. Like with Rhea's name, if you change the vowels from Rhea to Roa, the, the meaning totally changes from companion to evil one. <laughs> now, Labradors typically aren't evil, and so that, you'd never think of doing that. But we had an occasion one time where Rhea became Roa when I brought home a puppy. Have you ever had a dog that just like ruled the house and then you bring another dog home? We didn't know this would be a problem. We thought that Rhea would welcome having a, a friend. And so Kathy and I talked about getting a puppy. We kind of had the radar up and I was driving home from work one day and I see Labrador puppies for sale on the side of the road. And I think, I'm going to stop and look. I stopped, looked, looked great. They didn't look like they had mange or anything. And so... I picked one, paid for it, drove home, let Kathy know, you know, called her and said, hey, by the way, I got a surprise coming home. It's a little fuzzball next to me. So they were all in the driveway, you know, my two daughters and Kathy and the puppy, of course. You know why God makes puppies so beautiful? So you don't take them back. Because <laughs> they don't come pre-programmed to do all the dog stuff. They come, you know, unprogrammed. You got to program them. I mean, they just, they make messes, they tear things up, and they bother the dog that lives there. So anyway, as soon as we introduced the puppy to the home, Rhea changed. She became snarling, snapping, angry. I mean, can you imagine a Labrador acting like that? Rhea turned to Roa. And I'll never forget, we have an island in the middle of our kitchen and you can run around the island, and the puppy was chasing Rhea around the island. Rhea's, and every time, every lap, Rhea would like look up at me like, how much longer are you going to allow this? Don't you see this little runt? And anyway, I've reflected on that through the years and thought the jealousy that Rhea showed is sort of convicting. Because I think about my own insecurities, how often, often uh, I am jealous when others are introduced in my territory. 
as it were. A lot of times we have that. Why does my heart melt when somebody else gets the credit or the affirmation that I feel like, you know, I deserve? Why does somebody else's great idea that everyone goes, yeah, let's do that, and your idea is sort of just left there on the floor with the crumbs? Huh. You see, it's not just dogs. It's us. We feel threatened by somebody else's success, often because the goal is us rather than God. Well, let's turn together to the book of 3 John. I was thrilled to hear the words 3 John come out of our pulpit this morning. Chuck mentioned 3 John and uh, what we're going to be looking at today. I was just, I was glad he didn't preach on it. When he started to talk about it, I thought for a second, this is going to go south real fast. But then he thankfully went to that very comforting passage in 2 Samuel 12. <laughs> and speaking of uncomfortableness, I, uh, I listened to the Marathon podcast of when I was gone, and you had someone come in here and teach on the book of Jude. Like, that's what I'm going to do next week. So, I don't know, maybe I'll have to make a beeline to Second Samuel or something. <laughs> anyway, Third John. I thought about calling this message, Beware of the Dog Within, which would be kind of a snappy title, but <laughs> instead, we're going to call it Five Good Lessons from a Bad Example, because that is exactly what John gives us. I remember a few years ago, I went to the doctor, I was having... I don't know, sore throat or cough or something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it wouldn't go away. So I went to the doctor, was sitting there on his little elevated table that, um, that they have when you walk in, and he pulls out that little hammer that has a triangle on the end. Usually they beat you on the knee with it, you know, just to watch your, your knee inadvertently jerk. Don't you hate that? It's like I can't control, you can't control your leg when the doctor does that. It's like he does it just to watch how you're going to react. Anyway, I'm sitting on his table, and he starts hitting me with his little hammer. He goes, does this hurt? Yes, it hurts. You're hitting me with a hammer. But what, I was, what he was trying to discover is it hurt unusually. And I thought, you know, a doctor typically, when a doctor begins to press on you and poke on you, it's for one of two reasons. It's because he's pressing too hard or it's not supposed to hurt. Something's wrong. When I read 3 John, I get that same feeling that either John is pressing too hard, which we know he's not because he's inspired, or he's pressing in an area where it's not supposed to hurt. In other words, something's wrong. And we're going to find that that is the case as we look through this short letter, 15 verses, but boy, is it packed with a punch. Let's begin right in verse 1. John writes, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you were walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. You can probably easily look back to 2 John, just the letter right before this, and see that 
John again calls himself, refers to himself as the elder. But this time, instead of writing to the chosen lady, which is probably to a church, some say it's to a lady, but I think maybe to a, uh, to a church, we've got him writing now in 3 John to a particular individual named Gaius. You don't know anything about Gaius, uh, except that he is a beloved friend of John's, and John commends him, gives him good greetings, and uh, commends him in verse 4 by saying, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Implication is, is either that John led him to Christ or that John had some influence in his spiritual life. And we read this and we hear about children, and obviously John is not talking about his physical offspring here. He's talking about those who, have, who uh, he has mentored in the, in the spiritual life. And I think about my own kids, my physical children, uh, our daughters, Sarah and Kate, who are walking in the truth. And I don't know, if you've got a child that is walking in the truth, then you know what John is saying. There is no greater joy. I mean, it's like you can die happy if that's happening. But the, the flip side is also true. Those of you who still are the parents or grandparents of prodigals, you know the pain that is there that it is a pain that is so unusual, and um, it really goes deep. So for John to say, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walking in the truth, whether you are on the bad side of that truth or the good side of that truth, we understand what John, John is saying. It is wonderful when people walk in the truth, and it is hard when they don't. John gets to the heart of his letter now in verse 5. And he again gives commendation, but then he begins to get very convicting. He says, Beloved, you're actually acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they're strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with them. He refers to strangers here, uh, verse 5, end of verse 5. The strangers he's talking about aren't total strangers. They just mean they're the people who aren't members of that church. They are um, visitors, you might say, to the class, visitors to the church. And John says, you do well to send them on their way. So it's sort of a uh, um, unusual from our perspective. We don't have guests, guest preachers in the sense in the same way that they did. They had house churches. Often they would have guests that would be traveling through that would be, you know, commended by whomever the leaders are. And they would be sent away with sort of what we might call a love offering. You know, we'd sort of pass the plate or pass the hat, as it were. And John says, send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, meaning don't send them out in empty-handed. You know, give them money, give them a, a place to stay, give them food, give them some kind of provision so that when they leave, they're not leaving empty-handed. They're getting sort of what you might call, uh, what we would call a love offering. These itinerant ministers, John say, says, is for the sake of the name. They are preaching the truth. And they say, John says, they're not accepting anything from Gentiles, meaning Unbelievers, they're not requiring unbelievers at all to give money. They don't pass the plate when they're teaching about the gospel. The gospel is free. 
often the Apostle Paul would work at tent making so that he wouldn't have to, you know, basically pass the hat among his congregation. He wanted them to be able to hear the gospel totally free without any expectation that, oh, you're buying your salvation. These preachers, uh, John says, are the same. They go out among the Gentiles and they're not re requesting any money. So John says, so we, believers, need to give them money. We need to, to support them and provide for them. Send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. I love that occasionally we'll have in our class, you know, our missionaries come. In a couple of weeks, Barnabas is going to come. Barnabas is a great example of this type of individual that John's talking about. They don't often come, but when they do, you know, we, we support them on a regular basis financially with prayers, and we're told that we ought to support such men, verse 8, so that, here's the purpose, we may be fellow workers with the truth. Just because Barnabas goes overseas and does what you and I can't do doesn't mean that we aren't involved with that. When we support Barnabas or others that do this kind of work, we are on the ground with them. We are there with them. We are supporting the work that they do. We are fellow workers with the truth. Remember when uh, David, uh, wasn't King David at that time, but he was uh, anointed, he uh, sort of pretended that he wanted to fight with the Philistines in the battle at, that ultimately would take Saul's life, and the Philistines said, there's no way we're going to let you fight with us. We remember that you took Goliath's head, so um, you can't fight. Go, go back home. So David runs back home to Ziklag, and when he gets to Ziklag, he finds out that the Amalekites have come and raided and taken all their stuff. And so David chases the Amalekites, and some of the people are too weary to continue the chase. You remember that? And so he leaves them there at the brook, and then David goes and retrieves all the stuff, comes back, and some of the worthless men in David's army say, well, you know, these people who didn't go with us into the fight, they get nothing. And David says, wait a minute, those who stay with the baggage share just like those who go out to the fight. It's similar in that those of us who support the missionaries that go out, we may not be able to go, but if they're able to go and we're able to support them, we are fellow workers with the truth, and we are involved just as much as they are. So, you know, those of us who aren't able to go to the mission field, we are still participating in mission work when we actually support what Barnabas and our other missionaries are doing. I heard about a, a, a commercial that Jaguar had on, uh, uh, it was around Christmas time, I think, years back, and it was a radio promotion they had in Dallas that began with this voice. And you know, if, if you say anything with a British accent, it, immediately it just sounds so sophisticated. But the, the, it was this lady who said, you have heard it is more blessed to give than to receive. And then, you know, immediately, your ears perk up. You think, well, I know who said that. Jesus said that. You know, here's a Jaguar commercial, and they're quoting Jesus, and in a British accent. I mean, it's almost like Robert Powell right here on the radio. <laughs> but then she goes on to say, um, let, me, let me look. I wrote it down. I want to make sure I say it right. She said, whoever said that must have been on the receiving end. It is better to give than receive. Whoever said that must have been on the receiving end. Well, that is just wrong. Jesus said it, first of all, not whoever, and he was not on the receiving end. Jesus was the giver. So anyway, I had a friend that actually heard, heard this commercial and wrote to Jaguar, saying, you know what, by the way, it was Jesus, and uh, you probably should 
take that commercial off because it makes you look bad. Jesus was not on the receiving end. He was the giver. It is better to give than receive, Jesus says. Uh, I remember when, uh, when our daughters were young and precious, we taught them. Well, now they're old and precious, older and precious, but they're still precious. <laughs> we're teaching them to give to the church teaching them how to give to the church. And so I think, I think it was Katie, I think she had a, um, you know, like $12 or something. And so she's saying, well, how much should I give? You know, she's showing me her $12. How much should I give? And I said, well, you know, being the, the biblical guy that I am, I didn't tell her to tithe, though I just said, you know what, you need to give whatever you can give cheerfully. She says, oh, okay. So she hands me the $10 bill. And she keeps two. And I'm thinking, okay. I said, well, you know, that might be a little much. I, I thought, I really thought in my heart, this kid doesn't know the value of money. <laughs> and I thought, you know, it's easy for her to give so generously when she's got a father that takes care of all her needs. And then it hit me. <laughs> I'm the same way. I can give generously because I have a father who takes care of all my needs. I think my daughter had a better concept of money than I did. And this is where our text today begins to poke, like Dr. John, you might say, he's got us up on his table and he pulls out his little triangle hammer and begins poking and prodding because money is one of the things that pokes and prods us the most. The Lord expects each of us as a believer to have the heart of a giver, and not just financially. It's, it's easy sometimes to just write a check, isn't it? That's the easy way to participate. I mean, it's a good way. It's an essential way. But then there's the hard work of prayer. There's the hard work of actually serving, of giving up time to do something. Uh, this, is the, this is the hard part of the Christian life. It's easy to say, I'm going to pray for you. But do we actually do that? Do we actually pray for them? Do we actually give? Well, that's too convicting. So let's move on. Look at verse 9. John goes on and begins to give an example of one who is a taker, not a giver, but a taker. Verse 9, he says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. John is writing a letter. He, he says he wrote a letter, verse 9, to the church, but Diotrephes jumped in and evidently intercepted this letter, whatever it was that John was writing. John wrote a letter, and it was intercepted by one of the church leaders named Diotrephes. So having the heart of a giver as opposed to the heart of a taker, we're told Diotrephes loves to be first, loves to be first. Sometimes some of the best lessons in life can come from the bad examples. Like if you perhaps had a parent who disciplined you out of anger rather than 
out of justice, or a pastor who wields his Bible like a billy club instead of with compassion, or a boss who abuses his or her authority. It's easy to dismiss lousy leadership as incompetent, as arrogant, as uncaring, unworthy of our attention. But the scriptures show us, no, they're worthy of our attention to look because sometimes bad examples can give us some of the best examples of how not to live. The Bible often will make good use of bad examples. Bad examples aren't recorded in the scripture just so we can feel better about ourselves. They're recorded in the scripture that we can look and say, let's make sure we don't do that. Scripture records the failings of many, not give us, you know, sort of a jaded interest like the tabloids at the grocery store. You know, the tabloids at the grocery store are there just to make you feel better about your own life. You'll buy them to, you know, read the tasty morsels about what's going on in their lives, and then you'll feel better about yourself. But the reality is that's not what happens in Scripture. In Scripture, it's there to say, take a look at yourself, because we all have the potential. It's just like what Chuck was saying today with David. It's so easy, if that's not the particular sin that you've committed, to say, you know, shame on David, when the reality is any of us could do that. Any of us could do that, or anything else. The Apostle John takes up his pen and offers five good lessons from a bad example. So let's look at these five good lessons. Uh, If you want to write them, you can write them. Otherwise, just listen well. Here's number one. Watch out for the desire to be ranked as first. Watch out for the desire to be ranked as first. John said Diotrephes is the one who loves to be first among them. He desired to be first in the church, and this explains probably why it would have nothing to do with John's letter. It's like Diotrephes is like, well, I'm first. We don't have to listen to John, Apostle John, and his companions. Diotrephes wanted the highest position, probably saw John's letter as a threat. And again, John isn't writing this simply wagging his finger at Diotrephes. Remember, John struggled with this. Remember the Apostle John decades earlier when he was following Jesus around? Remember, it was James and John as they were approaching Jericho came up, got their mommy to go ask Jesus if James and John can have the best seats in the kingdom of God. Mom, go ask. Now's a good time. Ask him if we can have the best seats in the kingdom of God. Sit at the right, at the left. Say it just like that. Well, and Jesus, of course, sees right through it and asks James and John, do you really want to have to go through what it's going to take to have that? James and John get rebuked for wanting to be first. And then the other disciples, the other ten, were indignant with James and John, not because they had done something wrong, but because they didn't bring their mom on the trip to ask Jesus those very same things. Everybody wanted to be first. The disciples would argue with one another who was considered to be greatest. You remember that? And here John, decades later, is saying, be careful, Diotrephes loves to be first. John could have easily said, I did too at one time. Watch out for the desire to be ranked as first. John had to learn it. John learned it. And we have to learn it as well. Here's the second. Submit to the authority God places over you. Submit to the authority 
God places over you. John said of Diotrephes, he does not receive us. He does not receive us. Diotrephes had a problem with authority. He was a leader who was under the authority of the apostles, or there's only one apostle left at this time, under the authority of the apostle John. John says he doesn't receive us. God has placed, he has designed creation with authority. And even the creation itself, you, you notice in, when God created the world, the sun rules the day, the moon rules the night, the humans are to rule over the birds of the sea, etc., etc. There is authority set up even in creation. And God has set up, even after the fall, authority in other realms of life, in the government, in the workplace, in the home, in the church. And submission to the authority that God places over us includes not only submitting to the authority God places over us, but those of us who are in authority not stepping outside the bounds of our authority. And that's exactly what Diotrephes did. He should have known no one person has the authority to put people out of the church. That's not how it's set up. Remember, Paul and Jesus both had taught, look, if you're going to put people out of the church, that whole church discipline thing, there's a very strategic specific set of steps you got to go through. And Diotrephes is like, no, I'll just do it, make Lone Ranger decisions all by myself without involving anybody else. John says that's abusing authority. Submit to the authority that God places over you. Even the Lord Jesus Christ has the Father over him. Even Jesus submitted to authority. In Gethsemane, remember Jesus' magnificent prayer, not my will but yours be done. Here's the third. Two words, stay teachable. Stay teachable. John wrote, he said, neither does he himself receive the brothers. Meaning, those guest preachers that come along, Diotrephes doesn't receive them. He's not going to be taught by some guest. Diotrephes loves to be first. He's the one that's got to do all the teaching. John writes, he doesn't receive the, the brethren. He refused to welcome these traveling teachers because he, as first, felt like it's his turf, his ministry. It can be really easy to feel threatened when someone comes in to do what you're doing. And what if they do it even better than you do? Ooh, that is threatening. That can be threatening if you don't stay teachable. We've got to watch out for the attitude that suggests that we've got nothing to learn from anybody else, that we alone are the fountain of truth. And the reality is we need to stay teachable. John wrote back in verse 8, he says, we should support the missionaries. We are fellow workers with them. They're not our antagonist. Think about other churches. You know, we've got a great church. I mean, if you think about it, think about the various aspects of our church. It's great. The teaching's great. The music's great, the fellowship's great, the activities are great, even the parking lot is great. We've got a great church. And if you don't think we've got a great church, go to another church and check it out. But be careful. What happens when you get to that other church and they don't have a good parking lot? Or their music is, yeah, their music's not as great as our music. And their teaching is definitely not as good as our pastor. You begin to make those comparisons and you realize it's sort of an us versus them type thing. Not only in churches across our same you know, denomination, though non-denominational is kind of its own denomination, 
you know, you begin to look at other, other uh, aspects of Christendom and other brothers and sisters across the world, and you begin to compare and say, wait a minute, they're doing it wrong. We are the only ones that do it right. That's a, that's a principle that we find in the text that we can apply to a lot of different places. It simply means be humble, be teachable. We alone are not the fountain of truth. Fourth, fourth, someone else's success doesn't threaten our success. Someone else's success doesn't threaten our success. Or you could say it, someone else's success doesn't mean you're a failure. It doesn't. When my uh, dad was a young salesman with more business forms, you, you remember more business forms back when we actually had business forms? More business forms. My, uh, my dad was a salesman, and he was young. He was a young Christian at the time, and he told me that he worked alongside a guy who was about his age who was a whole lot more successful than he was, except this guy wasn't a Christian, wasn't pretending to be a Christian, cut corners, cheated, and... My dad was like, well, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm trying to do stuff right. And this guy, why, why in the world are you blessing him when I'm here struggling to provide for my family? And this went on for a few months, and finally, God got dad's attention and basically laid on his heart to start praying for this guy. And he prayed for him. And nothing really changed in the other guy, even though dad was basically praying that the guy would repent. But what happened is... Dad repented. In praying for this other guy, Dad's heart was changed to become more soft and tender, and God's focus, God got Dad's focus off Dad, and instead got it on God, on God's interests. That uh, I take my hat off for my Dad's humility in that. John says Diotrephes was, quote, unjustly accusing us with wicked words unjustly accusing us with wicked words. So our principle here is someone else's success doesn't threaten our success. Not only did Diotrephes accuse them unjustly, but he used wicked words. He was malicious. He was hateful. He was hurtful in what he did. This speaks really of Diotrephes's insecurity. When someone has to hit a low blow like that, it just speaks to the insecurity of the person who is doing the, doing the speaking. So Diotrephes is not only not being generous to the traveling teachers, but he's even refusing others to be hospitable too. He refuses to let others help. He, he does not receive the brethren, and he forbids those who desire to do so. This guy's got problems. How do you ever get in leadership? We never have leadership like that in the church, do we? Somehow it happened. And it still does. It still does. Well, John goes on here in verse 11 to give a direct command to his reader, to Gaius, and also to us. Look at verse 11. He says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So now we're introduced to this third individual, Demetrius. Don't know anything about him except John says Demetrius is doing a great job. 
So he says, Gaius, you should emulate what is good. Do what Demetrius is doing. Don't do what Diotrephes is doing. Diotrephes is all about him. Demetrius, on the other hand, has a good testimony, and you should emulate or imitate what is, what is good, not what is evil. So here's our fifth and final principle. Become a student of all lifestyles and imitate the good. Become a student of all lifestyles and imitate the good. Again, we see all kinds of people. And our natural inclination when we see different people is either to measure ourselves by them, either to make us feel better, or often we feel worse. Uh, Again, social media is one of the worst places that you can spend a ton of time other than just check out your family's what's going on with your family because people show their best foot there, don't they? And not only their best foot, their best face. Everybody looks great on social media. It's the same thing with, um, with our hearts when we look at other people's lives and we think, gosh, why is my life like that? Become a student of all lives and imitate the good. We're not just looking at the external. We're looking at what their lives end up like. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Just listen. Hebrews 13, 8. The author writes, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of the way of their life, imitate their faith. Considering the result of the way of, of their way of life, imitate their faith. Look at how their life has turned out. And those who do it well, imitate their faith, because their faith leads to that result. If you see somebody whose life is great, that didn't happen by accident. They made that choice. And you either ask them, or if you can be astute enough to just observe what is it about their life that gave them that success, and then imitate their faith. On the other hand, you can do like what the book of Proverbs did when uh, David or David took Solomon, or not, we're not exactly sure who it was, but you know, the father took the son, takes him down the street, and says, let me show you something. See this idiot over here? Watch him. Watch what happens. And this guy, of course, um, makes poor decisions. And, he's, and we're given a model. The sluggard in the book of Proverbs. Again, I looked, I discerned, I went by the field of the sluggard, and I made a deduction. His life ended up like this. Therefore, I'm not, not going to let my life end up like that. Become a student of people, and not just people, not just the surface, but the results of their life. I hope that you will never, I don't want to be extreme, but I hope that you will, you will often, maybe I should say it more positively, I hope that you will often observe a tragic life and really take a deep breath, a deep sigh, and think, what led to that? No one's life ever craters in a moment without a series of decisions that happened before that. The success of our Christian lives is success in the basics. It's the basics. Daily confession to God. Because we all fail daily. But when you let it pile up and pile up and pile up, it becomes so easy to justify that eventually we just start redefining sin. We don't even call it sin. 
to be regularly in this book to allow the Word of God to wash over us, to reveal to us, to regularly be in prayer, to regular when the Lord provides the opportunity to share your faith with others, to regularly be giving. These are not things we do to check boxes to feel better about ourselves. It's healthy. It's, it's the healthy part of the Christian life that we've got to do. Become a student of people and imitate the good. When I was in uh, grade school, we had what we called every year bicycle rodeo. Did you ever participate in a bicycle rodeo? Anybody even heard of a bicycle rodeo? Okay, well, there's a few. Well, down in South Texas in San Antonio, every year we had what's called the bicycle rodeo. And that's just marketing, basically, to teach children how to be safe on their bicycle. But it was, we call it bicycle rodeo because there was various events. They'd come in and they'd lecture you on how to ride your bicycle safely. You know, all that stuff about getting off, walk your bike across the street. Has anybody ever walked their bike across the street? You just ride it across. You just look both ways and ride it across. But anyway, bicycle rodeo, they come every year and they teach us how to be safe. We had various events. There was racing, of course, which is fun. There's weaving in and out of cones to see how well you can do. It was a competition and there were prizes and it was, it was sort of fun. But what I always thought was the most challenging was balancing. The challenge was, you know, you'd, you'd all sort of line up and then it'd be a mark, on your mark, it said go. And the goal was to be who was the last one to cross that line because that meant that you were going the slowest and you had the best balance. And so it was sort of funny. And this, uh, your intuition when people say your mark, it said go is to take off. But when they do it, mark, it said go, we'd all just sit real still and try to balance and go real slowly. And if you put your foot down, well, you got like five or ten seconds added to your time. So you didn't want to put your foot down. And I thought about that in relation to just our lives. That is so counterintuitive to what we think about when we think about a race. We think about a race as the first one across the line. But if we had entered the balancing uh, event with the same mindset of a, of a speed race, we would have lost. We'd have crossed the line thinking we're winning. The reality is we're number one loser. Our race has different rules, Jesus says. The Apostle John, remember, learned this the hard way. Don't turn there, but just listen as I read that account that I mentioned earlier. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down, making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right, one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers, but Jesus called them to himself and said, now here is the million-dollar paragraph. Listen to these words of Jesus. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, unbelievers, lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, 
just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus said, you're in the wrong event. You think you're in the race. You are in the balancing act. You are going slowly. You are being a servant. You're not in the same race the world's in. The world says to win the race, you put others down. You use your authority for yourself. Jesus says, nope, that's not who you are. If you have authority, you are a servant. Jesus said, even I am not doing that. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for others. Well, John concludes this letter of his in verses 13 to the end. And look at the amazing transition from what we just read in Matthew of James and John coming up, trying to elbow their way to the front of the line, to John's final words here in verses 13 and following. John writes, I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. What an amazing transformation John had experienced over these, well, since this, what, about 60 years, definitely 50 years since the event in Matthew where he writes what he writes here in 3 John. He had been changed by Jesus Christ, and what he was personally had experienced, he was teaching here. Look out for these diatrophies and don't be this diatrophies. Listen again to those five lessons from a bad example. Number one, watch out for the desire to be ranked as first. Number two, submit to the authority God places over you. Number three, stay teachable. Number four, someone else's success doesn't threaten our success. And finally, become a student of all lifestyles and imitate the good. Imitate the good. Let's pray. Father, how easy it is for us to read through 3 John, just these few verses, and to just sort of go, hmm, and move on. How difficult it is to take this deep dive and to look at these five warnings, these five lessons from the bad example of Diotrephes. And honestly, it's easy to look at Diotrephes and just sort of dismiss him, thinking, yeah, he's such a bad guy. But in reality, how easy it is for each of us to fall for these errors, looking to be first, refusing to submit to authority, refusing to stay teachable, being threatened by others' success rather than supporting them, and refusing to learn from the lives of others. Father, thank you for John's courage to write these words. Thank you for his love and compassion. And even thank you for his life change. He doesn't make a big deal about it here, but we can see in the scriptures, John changed from a person who desired to be first to a person who said, don't be like that. Help us, Father, as we say amen, as we move on back into what is easily the rut of our routine. Help us not be the same people. 
Give us the courage to change, to grow, to become the people that you want us to be. And we'll give you the glory for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.